The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. We're in the book of Colossians, and I just want to remind you that um, in case you're wondering why do we take time here and there to hit series where we just go through a book, um, it's called expository. When you go through a book of the Bible, it's expository teaching. And it's really to remind us of, of one of the most important things, and that is to ask ourselves, why do we believe what we believe? Where do we get our doctrine from? What, what, what makes me go, okay, this is what I believe about God, and this is why I live my life this way, and this is what builds my faith? Um, is it from pastor television guy, and is it from books and the store, the Christian section, is it from Christian magazines or podcasts? All those things are great. I give them thumbs up. But ultimately, you need to make what you believe. You need to solidify your doctrine from one thing alone, right? This is where what you believe needs to come from. And if your faith and what you believe actually only comes from what you hear us say every week up here, you're in a danger zone. You need to know why you believe what you believe, not just because Pastor Derek says so or some other pastor that you admire a whole lot like me. Um, you know, no matter what somebody says, you need to know why you believe what you believe because of what the Bible says, right? Okay, so that's why we're going through the book of Colossians right now. Colossians, I love it. Pastor Derek last week went over chapter one, and it's awesome. Colossians is like a stick of dynamite. It's really small, but man, it's really powerful. Um, it's only four chapters, and the overwhelming theme of the book of Colossians, it's funny, uh, my wife and mother-in-law asked me the other night what I was preaching on today, and I'm like, Jesus. And they're like, okay, yeah, really, but what? And I'm like, no, Jesus. He's the theme of the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is the Apostle Paul going, hey, in case you forgot what this is all about, in case you forgot what your Christianity is all about, in case you forgot what church is about, in case you forgot what your existence is all about, it's about Jesus. Having said that, we'll go into Colossians chapter 2. Reminding you that uh, in chapter 1, giving you a little refresher of the context, Paul is in prison while he's writing this letter, okay? He's in prison, so he's not in comfy circumstances. Um, he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, which were Christians that were in, being influenced by Judaizers, people that would tell them, hey, yeah, you've got Jesus, but now you also need this stuff. Judaizers were people that would say, hey, you need Christ and you need the Jewish law. You need all these commandments. Those things together are what makes you a legit believer. And so he was talking to people who were being influenced by Judaizers, as well as people who were being influenced by Gnostics, people that were telling them, you know, uh, sure, Jesus, but there's so much more other mystery in the world, so much more other spiritual depths that we need to delve into to grow and mature. And Paul is sitting here going, eh, eh. No, 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 no. That's not what I taught you, and I'm going to bring you back to what I taught you um, so that you don't buy in to those lies. In chapter 1, he expressed his love, his admiration, and gratitude and longing for them. He made, he made sure they knew he was praying for them and how he was praying for them. I love what Pastor Derek did last week talking about your so that prayers. Did any of you guys pray so that prayers last week rather than just praying, God, uh, you know, Bless my family, you know, bless my family so that we can be a blessing and so on. Um, so he said this, I'm praying for you. This is how I'm praying for you. That was really great. 
And in, verse, in chapter one, after that, he launches into the theme of the book of Colossians, which is the preeminence of Christ. I love that, the preeminence of Christ. I, I went to the dictionary and looked up that word preeminent. And the definition of preeminent is eminent above and before others, superior and surpassing. Now, someone can be preeminent in anything, like someone could be the preeminent neurosurgeon in the world, or someone could be um, the preeminent not, um, authority on this subject or that subject. And the interesting thing about Colossians chapter 1 last week is that it says Christ is preeminent above everything, above all. And so there's not categories, there's not like a thing that Christ is preeminent above and before. It said he is above and before everything. Preeminence essentially means before and above. So when we say Christ is preeminent, and when the theme of this letter to the Colossians says, essentially the theme is Christ is preeminent, the whole point of this book is that Christ is before everything and he's above everything. That there is nothing you could bring up, there is no argument, there's no persuasion, there's no subject, no topic, no person, no place, no thing that you can mention or think of that is before or above Christ. Romans chapter 11, the same Apostle Paul says in verse 36, he says, all things were created by him and through him and to him, and all things exist for his glory. And Philippians, the same Apostle Paul said to the church of Philippians that the Father exalted the name of Jesus above all names, giving him the name above every name, that, we should, that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of this is like machine gun of Jesus. Like Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the top. There's nothing greater, nothing more, nothing before. Jesus is all. And that is not to detract from the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because as we read in Philippians, the Father is the one who said, I'm exalting the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, as we see throughout the Bible, is the one who reveals to us Jesus. You can't see and believe in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and reveals him to you. So this is the Trinity all working together to shout and smack us in the face that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So having said that, let's start reading. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, which is Christ, in whom are hidden, here we go, here's another nice word, all the treasures, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's just pause right there for a second. Paul, starting off this letter, he's, he's, we have to remember this was written as, as a letter, not as like verse and chapters. It was written as a letter to a church. And at the end of chapter one, he's saying, guys, I have been working really hard. I've been exhausting all of my energy for this one thing. He said, I have been struggling and wavering, uh, I've been struggling without wavering. I have been working as hard as I can so that you could all grow and mature and grow into the riches of the fullness, which is Christ. So to all the, the Gnostics who were trying to say, 
yeah, 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 you got Jesus, now let's get into the deep stuff. Which is something we still hear today. It's something that we still hear today in America, in church, is, yeah, 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 I, I've heard the gospel, Pastor Stephen. I, I, I get that. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right, 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 right. That's, that's like entry-level stuff. I want to get into the deep stuff. Just throw up a flag right here, because Paul is saying the deep stuff, the mystery, was already revealed in Christ. He's saying right here, the mystery, the stuff that was hidden. You've got to remember in the Old Testament, there was shadows, there was prophecies, there were things that were kind of like there were hints that were given. All throughout Isaiah, there were hints that were given about Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, the fact that Jonah was in the whale for, uh, for three nights and three days, those were pictures, they were shadows, they were just unclear images that would give us hints to what would come. The Bible calls them shadows, as we'll read in just a minute. Those shadows that were cast by a substance. There's a shadow on the stage right now behind me of the light hitting my substance and throwing a shadow on the ground. The Old Testament was shadows of the substance, which is Christ. There was a mystery in the Old Testament. There were prophecies that we'd sit there and read. I'm like, screech owl in the desert, what? You know, it's like all this stuff that, what is What's, what's, what are they talking about? And then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit and the Father reveal the mystery, Christ. Chapter 1 last week said, the mystery is this, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that was hidden for the ages. It's not hidden anymore. And so before, because here's the dangerous thing. What do we do in life as humans and especially as Americans? We, we have this, this natural bent to, okay, what's next? I've got this, or I've achieved this, or I have this in my life. What's the next thing? Like, it starts off as a kid. It's like, someday I'm going to graduate high school, and then my life's going to be perfect. I can move out of the house, and I'll have everything I ever wanted. I won't have to do what mom and dad said anymore. I can live my own way. And as a high schooler, that's the way you think. And then you get out, and you're like, okay, if I could just get to get accepted to this college, and if I could just get this degree, or if I could then just land that job, or if I could just make this much money, or if I could just find that special someone, or if I could finally have a child. Uh, you, li you like that? Nice. <laughs> or if I could finally, uh, you know, someday, n then after that, it's grandkids. And in our lives, it's always there's something more that we think, okay, I've got this. Now, if I could just get that, and, and that's what we do. And if we're not careful, we bring that also into our faith of, okay, I've got Jesus, now what? And this letter screams, you've got Jesus, now Jesus. You've got Jesus, now Jesus. Let's keep reading. Oh, wait, I, I can't miss this main point. The gospel rejects arguments that detract from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Anything that would try and convince you, anything that belittles the preeminence before and above of Christ, anything that says, oh, you know, no, 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 Jesus was just a prophet, or he was just a good man, or just a good teacher, or, you know, he, he, he taught a lot of good things and did some miracles, or, or you know, it, it belittles the greatness and the preeminence of Christ, that's deception. It's not true. Throw it out. Leave it at the door. We don't want it. 
if it detracts from that. And then secondly, if it detracts from what he has done, then it's not true. If it detracts from who he is or what he has done, we want to throw it out. Um, Continuing on, I'm going to pick back up in verse 3, where we've already read, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, listen, guys, I'm telling you this so that you understand how important it is and so you don't let people deceive you. There are, there are thousands, thousands of voices, thousands of opinions, thousands of perspectives, thousands of arguments, if not millions. I, I'm a member on a, a Facebook page. I have one of my best friends back in Texas um, started a Facebook group called Capturing Christianity. It's really awesome. If you're on Facebook, I'd go, go like it, follow it. It's a, it's a page all about apologetics, about knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and there's thousands of members on this page And it's so amazing, and it's really encouraging, but at the same time, I log on there, and I'm like, they had a poll one day of what do you believe about this, and it was like 20 different perspectives with really fancy names. And I was like, uh, uh, I had a hard time like picking one or choosing one because there were so many different varied opinions and perspectives and views. Paul is sitting here in this letter. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm working really hard to remind you, to, t- to remind you what I already taught you in this one dominant thing, and that is Jesus. In fact, the next chapter is going to tell us Christ is all that matters. It's going to tell us that Jesus is all that matters. Paul is sitting here telling us over and over and over again. He said it in chapter one. He said almost the same thing in chapter two, and he's going to say almost the same thing in chapter three that the mystery, the deep things that were hidden is Jesus Christ who is now revealed. Let's go on reading in in verse 6. It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Is this not saying the same thing? He didn't say, so now that you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, move on to bigger and better things. He didn't say, so now that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, Let's dive into the deeper stuff. He didn't say, now that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, you need to learn how to act. No. He said, now that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Why? Because the gospel is not just a door, it's a path. And one thing that a lot of Christians do, a lot of Christians will will think, okay, I've got Jesus, I've got my stamp, I'm in the club, I've got my ticket to heaven, I, I'm, I'm a part of the family now, and they'll treat it just like, all right, I walk through the door, and don't, don't get me wrong, Jesus even said himself, I am the door. He's the only way in. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So by all means, yes, he is the door, but not just the door. He's the path. It says, as you have received, past tense, you've received Christ, now walk in him. This is not a one-time thing. This is not a, all right, I've done it, now I can go about my, my merry way. It is, if you have received Christ, the goal now is to walk in him day by day. How crazy would we be if we bought a house, took out 
a mortgage, spent hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars on a home, and walked in the door, and that's all we did. We didn't go into the kitchen, we didn't go to the living room, we didn't go into the bedrooms, no restroom. Our experience of our house was just walking through the door and then just standing there. That's pretty dumb, right? That's what Christianity is if you choose not to walk in Christ day in and day out. The danger is that we think we've got to go to other things or more things. And as we can see in this letter, this is the same thing that these Gnostics were trying to trip up the Christians with, getting them to think, hey, yeah, you've got Jesus, right, we get that, now let's find some more deep things. Or the Judaizers who were saying, hey, yeah, you've got Jesus, but now you need to check off all these things and act this way and behave this way. Don't do those, do this and Jesus, those things plus Jesus, and you're good. And the gospel is Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus alone achieves and accomplishes all of this. The gospel isn't just a door, it's a path. Paul says, since you have received Christ, past tense, walk in him, present tense, not a one-time transaction. A lot of people, though, try to skip the door and just try to walk the path, which is what would essentially be the believing you're a Christian because you're a good person, which Jesus reminds us that the scripture says there's no one good. So if you think you're a good person because of what you do, Jesus says, liar, <laughs> or deceived. A lot of people just try to be good or walk the path without going through the door, and it's because they want God's stuff. They think, if I'm a good person, if I do the right things, if I do enough good things, if, I, if the scale of good and bad actions in my life, if the scale of good things outweighs the bad things I've done, then I'm a good person, and, and when I stand before God on judgment day, he'll go, wow, you did a lot more good stuff than bad stuff. Okay, come on in, and that's not the way it works. And it's essentially people thinking that I'm going to be a good person. They treat the gospel as if it's karma, as if I do good, then I'm going to get good. And listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you get Christ. The gospel isn't you get God's stuff. The gospel is you get God. The gospel isn't do things and follow Jesus so you can get all of his blessings. The gospel is pursue Jesus so you can get Jesus. Remember all that preeminent talk? That he's before and above how is it that we could see and believe that and not realize he's what we want? How could we see Jesus is before everything, he's above everything, he's greater than everything, he has all majesty and all glory and not realize he is what we're pursuing? It's because we live in this temporary, tangible world where everything is what we can see and feel and it's easily accessible, easy to believe, easy to fall in love with and let our affections turn toward these things. It takes faith to see that Jesus is everything. I, I'm going to share something a little, a little, might seem a little strange in this context, but uh, you'll, you'll get where I'm getting at at the end. Um, I've been married a little over two and a half years, and uh, I have my wedding vows. Katie and I did that thing that a lot of people are doing now where we write our own vows um, rather than doing the traditional one, and I... Uh, I'm going to read a chunk of my vows to my wife here this morning. Dear Katie, it took me 27 years to find you. 
And my only regret is that I didn't find you sooner. Had I known all along where you were, I could have found you sooner. That's more time with you. More time I could have had someone doing my laundry, cleaning my house, <laughs> contributing a second income, cooking meals for me, and let's not forget, uh, marital intimacy is a good thing too. <laughs> all these things and more are the reasons I'm so glad I finally found my wife. I promise to remain faithful to you all of my days as long as you continue to fulfill these aspects of our relationship. <laughs> I love you. It's really convenient that she took the baby out just a minute ago. <laughs> so you're in one of two spots. Either right now you are thinking I'm a jerk and you have a really low view of me, or you're realizing this is not really my vows. <laughs> On that note, those weren't my vows. I did write them, and they didn't sound anything like that. Because if they had been that, we would have been standing at the altar, and she probably would have slapped me and walked out and all that kind of stuff, right? Why? Because that is entering into a covenant so that I can get things from my covenant partner. Oh, snap. It is... Engaging in something because of what you can get from someone rather than getting someone. I didn't marry my wife so she could do all these things for me. I married her because I discovered a woman that I fell in love with and I wanted her for the rest of my life. Now, we do work together to serve one another. She did laundry yesterday. That was on the list. <laughs> all these things happen. Like, we do cook for one another, we do clean the house together, we do these things for each other, but that's not why we got married. We do those things for each other because we love each other and therefore serve one another as a team, as Genesis says, one flesh. We work together now to serve each other because we love each other. And so when we look at Christ, who the Bible says over and over that we are the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the bridegroom, that's a picture given to us to help us understand the relationship we are supposed to have with Jesus. But all too often, our relationship with Jesus is, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do good things, I'm going to be a good person so that I can get the list that if I do these things, God's going to bless me, he's going to give me stuff, he's going to take care of me, he's going to protect me, he's going to lead me and guide me. And if that's why you follow Jesus, or if that's the drive of your pursuit of God, then you're not really the bride. Got quiet up in here. Why? The bride loves the groom and wants the groom. We should want Jesus. Your faith should not be, I'm going to believe and follow and do so that I can have this, have that, all of God's stuff. Your faith should be, I'm going to pursue Christ because he is the goal. He is what I want. There's a, a passage in uh, Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus is talking to this massive group of people and he says, guys, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who's walking through a field, stumbles and finds some hidden treasure. And for joy over the treasure, he buries it and hides it. 
goes back home and sells everything that he has so that he would have enough money to buy the field so he could have the treasure. That ought to be the picture of our Christianity. Meaning, our faith is not a, I'm going to work hard so that I can get this stuff from God. Christianity is a discovering of treasure. It is a oh snap, that is immensely valuable, so valuable that I'm willing to sell everything I have so that I can get that. The treasure. It's not, I, I, I want to follow Jesus so I can get all this other stuff. It's realizing Jesus is treasure worth selling everything you have. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a discovery. Your faith will not be authentic. Your faith will not be strong unless you come to the point where your eyes are opened and you see the magnificent beauty and desire of what Jesus Christ is. He is preeminent. As long as your faith is a, a weekly religious checkmark where I did my spiritual duty, or as long as your faith is I ought to be good so I can get God's blessings, or so God can do this or open this door for me or lead me down this path. As long as I do these things to get this stuff from God, that's not Christianity. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure and realizes that it's worth more than anything else. And the treasure is not his stuff, it's him. Uh, Dr. John Piper says something over and over that I thought was just phenomenal. He said, if you got to heaven, if your, your time on this earth came to an end and you got to heaven, and you got there and there was, like, like has been depicted, there were streets of gold and pearly gates and mansions and all the glitz and glamour you could imagine and more than you could imagine, because God's that good. If it, it was all of that, all the stuff you could want, and Jesus was not there, would you be content? Because the goal of heaven's not heaven. The goal of heaven's not streets of gold and mansions and all that. The goal of heaven is that you get to be with Jesus for eternity. He's the prize. He's the reward. He's the goal. Okay, I spent a lot of time there. Let's go on. Colossians 2, verse. let's pick up in verse, uh, let's see, 8, I guess is where we're at. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to What? Christ, again. He's saying one more time, see to it that no one deceives you with philosophy or arguments or empty deceit or human traditions rather than Christ. Once again, again and again and again, he's saying it's not complicated, guys. It's Jesus. What's our argument? Jesus. Who's the goal? Jesus. Who accomplished it all? Jesus. He's everything. He says, don't let anyone lead you astray or deceive you by anything other than Christ. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have, been or you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him, or I'll, I'll stop right there. So, so <laughs> once again, he's saying, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. In case you're confused about what God is like, look at Jesus. In case you're confused about what matters to the heart of God, look at Jesus. 
Why is it that there were people in the New Testament who would use scripture and argue and say, Jesus, this is what the scripture says, you're blaspheming. And Jesus would do something that would make them look really stupid, and he would do something that might have been against what it would look like the scripture was teaching, like all the time, like the time where there was a man with a withered hand. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, told him, stretch out your hand and be healed. And the religious people went, oh, it's the Sabbath. You can't do that. And Jesus is essentially saying, uh, hello, don't you get what really matters to the heart of God? This guy would be healed. It's a little more important. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you're wondering where good theology and doctrine comes from, just start watching Jesus. Let's go on. Verse 11, Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that passage ought to make you say, oh yeah. That passage right there is the gospel. Reminding us, hey, you were dead in sin. You were dead in trespasses. But Christ cut off the circumcision of your flesh, your sinful nature. And I used to wonder, like growing up, I've been in church my whole life. And I used to grow up wondering, like, really God, like, I mean, if you're going to pick a symbol... You're going to pick like a mark for the mark of your covenant. I don't know. I might not have picked circumcision. A little awkward. Uh, I might have like, like, can't we like, you could have done some shadowing of like, you know, a scar, like, you know, brand a scar, you know, cut a, a, a something like that. You know, circumcision, I used to scratch my head at it. And then, and the Bible doesn't say this, but I think, this is just what I started to realize, I think, and is that the thing that's interesting about circumcision is nobody knows it except the father who did it and eventually the bride who joins the groom. Those are the only two who know whether or not someone's circumcised. And I'm sorry if this is an awkward conversation, but <laughs> none of us know <laughs> whether or not we are. And it was assumed if you met a Jew that they were circumcised. It's not like they walked around and, and introduced themselves like, hi, you know. <laughs> I'm not trying to be crude, but I, I didn't pick it. <laughs> you didn't know if someone else was circumcised or not. We don't know each other's hearts. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that it's a circumcision of the heart. In the outer garb, we can look like Jews, or in everything that we do, we can look like Christians, but we don't know each other's hearts. Only the father who committed the circumcision act with the priest really knows. And eventually, on the day of marriage, the bride will know. Amen. 
Christ conquered our sin, paid our debt, and raised us to new life all at once. He conquered our sin, he paid our debt, and raised us to new life all at once. Paul reminds us of this, that it's not some new other thing that paid our debt. It's not our deeds, it's not our following certain commandments that paid our debt. It's not some new ideas and it's not some good works that set us free and and conquered sin and death. What was it? Christ. Who paid our debt? Christ. Who raised us to new life? Christ. Are you catching the theme? Christ is the theme. These five verses provide a five-verse summarized reminder of the gospel. Paul essentially is saying, guys, remember, Jesus did all that stuff. He's the reason you're not dead in sin anymore. He's the reason you're alive now. He's the reason that you have no more sin debt between you and God. Bring all the philosophies and ideas you want, none of them conquered our sin. Bring all the good deeds you want, none of them will conquer your sin. Only Christ can and only Christ did. Only Christ can save us and only Christ can change us. Nothing else. Only Christ can save us. Only Christ can change us. Let's look at verses 16. Starting in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with reasons by uh, his senseless mind and not holding fast to the head for whom the whole body nourished and knit together through, it, uh, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. One more time, he's now going, if people try to condemn you or judge you and say that you don't have an authentic faith because you aren't doing these things or because you're not doing these religious check marks, if, once again, I'll go back to that first point, if it detracts from who Christ is, or here we go, what Christ has done, it's empty, it's deceit. It's meant to lead you away from Christ, thinking that you need to do more things. It's, once again, Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. Jesus has accomplished it all. The feeling that we all wrestle with, all of us, every single one of us, pastors included, all of us wrestle with the feeling that we've got to do more to please God. All of us wrestle with the inner temptation to think that we've got to be a little better to get God to like us. Like, I know he's unconditional love and that he loves me, but does he really like me, you know? Does he really want me like that? Like, I need to be a little better. That diminishes what Christ did. Listen, God likes you and God loves you because of what Jesus did. And the reason it's set up that way is because none of us can go, oh, look at me. There's no swagger in Christianity. All of it is Jesus is awesome. Jesus is preeminent. 
Jesus is before and above. Pastor Derek said last week, the gospel reminds us how awesome Jesus is because while we were dead in sin and in trespasses, he, not us, he made us alive in Christ. He rescued us. It was all him. He is the, uh, what is it, the benefactor and we're the beneficiaries. I think is that the right way? I think so. He did it and we receive it because he is good. Paul explains that all of the old covenant regulations were merely shadows that would hint to Christ that was casting such a shadow. When the rule and regulations were the shadow, Christ is the substance. Looking down at a shadow on the ground can give you bits of information, but looking up at the substance of what's casting the shadow will give you the details. A shadow has elements of mystery, but when we look up to see Christ, the mystery is revealed. Here's the thing. If I, if my life, and, if, and I, I want to be candid and transparent before you guys, I, I've not reached perfection, obviously. And in fact, last week in staff meeting, I, I just had to confess before the staff, like, you know what, guys, I've found and seen some attitudes in my heart that stink lately. Um, some feelings and attitudes that are not godly. Like I'd react to certain situations a certain way, and be, then I'd be like, whoa, where did that come from? And it's essentially from this one thing. It's not because I haven't been getting into deeper things. It's because I've taken my eyes off of Christ. It's because I have not been pursuing Christ. If you want to look like Jesus, you have to look more at Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us that it is in beholding him that we are exchanged from glory to glory, meaning the more we look at Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. Have you ever, do you have that best friend or maybe your spouse or someone that the more time you spend with them, it's like you become more like them? Like growing up, I had one of my best friends back in Arkansas, his name was DJ, and like we were like finishing each other's sentences and <laughs> like we had spent so much time together that it was like we had almost become the same person. The more time you spend with Christ, the more you become like him, the more he works in you. And the sign of maturity is really in being able to easily do things that were once difficult for you, right? Like, when you start driving your car the first time, and I said this last time I preached up here, but when you start driving a car, you're like, okay, how easily should I press the brake, stopping, and like, how, especially if it's a standard, you're like, how much do I let off the clutch and the gas, and you know, uh, I got a blinker and all the, oh, mirrors, and there's so many things that's like, uh, but now, how many of you, when you're driving here this morning, you don't really, you're just like, I'm going to church, and you're driving, and you're not even thinking about turning on your blinker, but you do it subconsciously. Why? Because you're a mature driver. Because, not because you learned some new ways to drive, right? It's not like, hey, I'm a mature driver, I'm going to drive on the side of the road now. <laughs> I don't know why we got Southern really quick, but... <laughs> No, you're a mature driver because the things that were once difficult for you, you've done so much that they are now natural for you. And the things in our faith that are at one point difficult for us, the more and more we do them, the more we grow in them, and the more natural they become for us. And that is maturity. That is maturation. Let's continue on. Where did we leave off? Verse 23. Oh, wait, that's the end, isn't it? <laughs> do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
referring to all these things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I have not made it clear. If Colossians has not made it clear, and there's two more chapters for the next two weeks. You want to grow in your faith? You want to become more rooted and established in your faith? Pursue Jesus. Don't entertain ideas that it's something else, something more. You've got to be better or you've got to learn that other thing. But you need to spend more time with Christ. He is the goal. He is the reward. He is before. He is above. And as we'll see next week, he is all that matters. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.